Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. You're about to hear episode two of Trailblazers, and our guest on this show is the legendary Mr Norman Cook. Oh, yeah, exactly. And uh, really here you just get a taste of the music that was significant to Norman's journey in music. But if you want to hear tracks in full, go to Deezer.com and uh, there you can also find some special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and myself have put together and there's, there's stuff from our guests as well. What you need to know about this one is that uh, Nick and I were uh, fortunate enough to be invited down to Norm Turrets there in Hove, right on the beach, mm. this legendary place. And, lovely, uh, lovely gaff. Yeah, incredible. Both uh, both of us were incredibly jealous of where uh, Fat Boy lives. But um, uh, but you should know, really, that we were in his office, mm. not in his studio. Yeah, we were just, just, just having a chat around the table. And, it, exactly. Yeah, so uh, we, we weren't in a studio scenario, and uh, that's all you need to know about this one. Uh, still very vibey. Let's get started. Deezer Originals Trailblazers Norman Cook This week's Firestarter is a musician more known as a dusty-fingered crate digger of DJ Shadow proportions, but he was there for us even before DJ Shadow. He was our favourite pizza man that didn't deliver any pizza, and he ended up getting pretty much every student in the country who wasn't into dance music into dance music as the godfather of Big Beat. He's seen more armpits than anyone else on earth as the most loved DJ on these shores, totem of skin and southern fried records, and the unofficial mayor of Brighton and Hove, Norman Cook, a.k.a. Fat Boy Slim. Welcome to Trailblazers. Thank you, Eddie. With, with a star like that, I, I can, with an introduction like that, I can only disappoint, I'm afraid. <laughs> the, the armpit, the scene more armpits, I like that. I'm always looking for teeth. I think my, my, um, my, uh, uh, my eyesight doesn't mean I can see the armpits so well. If I can see a sea of teeth, I know I'm doing well. Absolutely. Smiley, happy people. Um, all right, well, normally um, I just... Uh, Jump in, and I ask the first question. But before I do that, I've got to say thank you for so much uh, for inviting us into your your beautiful home here, uh, down by the coast. Down by the coast, in a lovely cosy place where we have no electricity. We're, we're that we're that rural. So we are dealing with a power cut, but that's more than made up for by the fact that we are recording this in front of a signed football T-shirt by Pele behind us, and to our left, another signed Brazilian football T-shirt by Ronaldo. This is basically the best office in the entire world ever. <laughs> so, in terms of um, your history, much success over many years. Now, when people ask you about the key to longevity, I, I'm wondering how you answer. It's, it's hard enough to have one big record, let alone multiple big records over many years. I honestly don't know. The, the, yeah, because like you're right, I mean, you're lucky if you get one one crack at the whip um, and I've, I've I seem to have nine knives because it hasn't all been good I mean there's been troughs in between the peaks so I think it, a lot of it is just dogged persistence a refusal for me to try anything you know when things are going bad and, and, and my accountant suggests maybe I should get a proper job I'm like no I refuse I don't, I don't know how to do it so a lot of it's persistence a lot of it's luck but, but I think for me it's I think it's it's my ears. Um, like a lot of people, a lot a lot of people who are successful in the music business. You've just got this knack of listening, hearing something, and going, "That's good." And knowing the difference between good and bad music, 
if you're a DJ, it's, it's that's 90% of the job done. Um, uh, and if you're a musician and you're making music, you know, you know, knowing when a track's finished is that is, is, is you know the greatest talent. So I've just been very lucky. I've been very lucky to have been in a in a uh, associated with a kind of music that has grown and grown. I've, I've yeah. it's been a great era for dance music, and and that was my, kind of my chosen subject. Um, uh, you know, when I started. DJing, it was a hobby, not a job, and you had to do a day job. My day job was being in the house mines. Didn't really like that. The music wasn't really into, you know, the, this kind of indie scene, or, or I'm not even a very good bass player, to be honest, <laughs> if truth be known. <laughs> but, um, but in those days, you know, dance music was a very underground niche thing, and I've been lucky that I've been in a growth industry. So uh, as as dance music has grown, I've grown, and and like you said, hopefully, uh, taken along a few converts, stolen a few souls. I mean, I, w- I really wish that you know, like how doormen on clubs have clickers and they click people in. I really wish I had this little clicker in my pocket, and every time someone said, "You're the reason I became a DJ," I went, "Another another soul is mine," uh, and some and some quite famous names as well. Yeah, can you tell us any? No, no, I don't. Oh. Them. I don't embarrass them, but some of the some of the biggest DJs in the world have come and come and said, you know, it was you who got me started on this. So, if if my contribution to dance music is that alone, then then I can die a happy man. But also, a very I do realise how lucky I've been to to because I love doing this. I don't know how to do anything else. I would I would be a very unhappy unhappy starving man if I if I hadn't been lucky enough to have such a long career. So trust in your instincts. Yeah, and and you know, and and yeah, like I say, it's probably seventy, eighty percent just luck. I I lucked out to be doing a kind of music. If I'd been, a, you know, a started as a you know a ska revivalist, <laughs> my, my career would have been over a long time ago. So okay, let's let's rewind now. So you talked about your your ears. Yeah. So um, when did those ears first become sensitive to music? Well, funnily enough, that brings us to our first track. Um, when I was young, I used to go and stay with my nan a lot in New Cross, and my uncle was in, in a band, in a pop band, and they used to rehearse in his front room. My uncle was called Dennis, and if you're hearing this, thanks, Uncle Dennis. Um, so, but they, they used to rehearse, and um, I used to, they used to let me sit there and watch them rehearse, and I think that's where I got the bug for music and for, for just you know, watching a band play. But I remember them playing this song called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and after hearing it, like after hearing them play it for an hour, it was totally in my head. I was like, "This is brilliant! This 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 is going to go far." This tune. So I think from then, from then, then or even from that age, I kind of knew what I could hear—a catchy chorus. Um, the interesting thing was I didn't had no concept of the idea of a cover version at that point. So when Lucy in the Sky of the Diamonds was on the radio, I said to all my mates at school, "Oh, my my uncle's in this band." And they went, your uncle's in the Beatles. I went, yeah, yeah. Well, he must be because they were rehearsing this last, last Saturday. <laughs> so how, how old were you around this time? Well, how, uh, when did Lucy and Sky... I was born in 63. That would have been 60... 
seven. So you were real, just a wee little nipper. Yeah. And, and those ears were absorbing and really aware, even at such a young age. Well, it was, it was, it was, it was there in my, my nan's front room, and there was drum kits and amplifiers, and they let me, you know, after they finished, they let me go on the drum kit, and so yeah, that that was where I got the bug. Amazing. So, shall we listen to the Beatles version? Yeah. <laughs> Trailblazers, Norman Cook. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and you were so young at, and in New Cross and at your uncle and auntie's place and your uncle's got a covers band and you're watching all that and you're, you're incredibly young so you, you were too young to have a, like a uh, how do I say it like a professional response to a, a piece of music but um, so was there a piece of music that made you just think wow at this time you know what the, the- the, the one that really nailed it for me, uh, and I'm not, not proud to say this, it was the Osmonds. Uh, so this would have been a few years later when I'm starting to think of careers other than train drivers. <laughs> and it was the summer that, that, that Crazy Horses was out. And the Osmonds came over and they were like on the news when they got off the plane. And I looked at Donny Osmond and he had a leather jacket with his name written in studs on the back. And he had a piano with little light bulbs that lit up when he played it. And he had this little thing on the edge of his piano uh, during the chorus when they went crazy horses. It went... And I, 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 I distinctly remember watching that and just thinking... That's what I want to do for a living. <laughs> I want a piece of that. And, yeah, so and I th- we, we've worked it out. I was eight years old. Eight years old. And from that moment on, when any, anyone asked me, what do you want to do for a living? I, want, I said, I want to be a pop star. I want to be a musician. Um, and, and that was my drive. That was, that was when I started buying records. That was, uh, you know, I was never particularly into football or... I think... Girls were the only distraction, I think, from, from then onwards. I, I, all I wanted to do was have a, a career in the music industry. And that was so early in your life. So at this point, did you find yourself gravitating towards an instrument? You know, you saw you saw Donny Osmond with his keyboard. Did you gravitate towards that? Or did you want to be a singer or a guitar player or what? No, I, don't, I think at that point, I, 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 I was, it was non-specific at that yeah. point. I, no, I just thought I just want to be... I mean, I did, over the years, I tempered it you know first I used to say I want to be a pop star but then when punk came along it's like I don't don't want to be a pop star I just want to be a musician and then as as I am now I'm happy just to settle for a job in the music business (laughs) that stops me having to get a you know day job doing you know just just doing something that I love but no I, I it wasn't I, I, at that point, I think I was learning piano at school, but p- uh, classical piano, and that was boring. Um, and I had an acoustic guitar, and I could play, learn to play One Called Wonders by the adverts and Buzzcocks songs and things like that. And so, yeah, but I, I veered more towards the guitar rather than the piano. Um, but if you think about it, the, the you know the 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 the, the, the ribbon 
styrofoam or whatever Donny was using to make the noise was quite prophetic in terms of you know my later misuse of electronics yeah. to make to make records. Trailblazers, Norman Cook. What a show Yeah, so I'm interested to know when you first started DJing, when you first took that crate of vinyl down to the youth club or whatever. I started DJing at quite a young age, um, only because pre-internet and pre-streaming, to if you were having a party, you needed records. And if, you, if your parents didn't have a very good record collection, it wouldn't be a very good party. Now, I was a vinyl junkie already by that point, so I, I, I had all the records. So I'd get invited to the parties because I had the records. And um, But of course, the nature of teenage parties is my records would invariably come home covered in vomit and cigarette butts. And so I started saying, look, I'll come to the party, but I'm not bringing my records because they're too precious to me. And then one, well, this happened one time, and, and, and the girl said, oh, what if my dad hires out these sort of, you know, the double decks, and, and you become, you're, you, you're in charge of the records and no one else is allowed near them? And I said, yeah, sounds, sounds all right. And, yeah, that was another, another light bulb moment because I really, really enjoyed the power of controlling... The music and, and the feeling of making people dance and turning them on by playing my favourite records. They seem to be really enjoying it. And, you know, I got tons more booking. Like every week, everyone's like, yeah, everyone was booking the same set of decks every week for me to go and DJ at their party. So, yes, that was another, that was a kind of eureka moment. But, but it wasn't what I intended. And, like I said, in those days, DJing was a hobby rather than a, a, a profession. So then you were 14, 15 or 16 or something like that? This, yeah, this would have been like about 13, 14, yeah. And I was doing school parties and weddings, but I, but I couldn't pay licence premises. So, yeah. And uh, what, what were the big records uh, then? When I really first started, it was... Devil Gate Drive by Susie Quattro, right. Tiger Feet by Mud. They were they were my two big floor fillers. Okay, but then shortly after that, punk came along, and so yeah, it was, it was punk, new wave, uh, and that's when I really that's when things really started kicking off for me because that's that was until then. Even though I knew I wanted to be in the music business, there was still this thing of like I wasn't very good at classical piano and thinking I don't actually really play I'm a sort of jack of all trades I'm an alright DJ I'm an alright guitarist I'm an alright pianist and then punk came along and, and, and Mark Perry was it said here's a guitar here's a drum kit now form a band and I've had that kind of DIY punk approach to making music ever since I'm still not a very good bass player guitarist or keyboardist and yet seem to have made a career so the first tune that I had felt an emotional response to but not necessarily the one that made me want to do this for a living um, was If You Leave Me Now by Chicago uh, and this is in the days of uh, parties I would have been about 13, 14 and it was days parties where everyone would get very very drunk no one would really dance but we'd all be eyeing up the girls and then right at the end they'd play the erection section and at that moment 
you had to, you had to be near the girl that you wanted to dance with because that's the only chance you'd get to dance with a girl. Before then, you'd been doing the uh, like this with the blokes, and the yeah the big tune of, of, of that first my first summer of snogging girls was if you leave me now. So it's a very emotional tune because at that moment when they played that, I would either be in the arms of the girl that I'd been lusting after all night. Or I would be sitting there watching her in somebody else's arms. Either way around, if that's the first time a tune became associated with an emotion. So now, if I hear "If You Leave Me Now" in a supermarket, I kind of well up. <laughs> I'm either like, "Oh yeah, do you remember, do you remember her?" Or, or "Wow, oh, yeah." So yeah, it was, that's the first time I yeah I I realised the the emotional power of music. And, and and it's lasting. I think music and smell are the most emotive triggers. Tunes I can I can hear a tune and it can remind me of a certain person or a certain moment in my life. And smells do it do it, but not as powerfully as music. Yeah. But um they they, they they really do Yeah, they they kind of they, they kind of become a sort of snapshot. Especially people. There's certain you know, you go through a list of tunes and I can name the person that they remind me of. Trailblazers, Norman Cook. If you leave it now, you'll take away the biggest part of me. Ooh, no, baby, please don't go. And if you leave me now, you'll take away the And what was the backdrop to all this? You, you mentioned you cross in the context of your, your uncle and aunt's place. Were you, uh, you a South London boy? Are you, is this all happening in South London? Uh, I, was actually, I was actually born in Bromley, which puts me in with David Bowie and Susie Sue. But I grew up in Rygate, which is in Surrey, a suburban commuter. No, not much goes on there. Sort of place, as soon as you're 18, you move out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in a, but in, again, in a way, that kind of probably shaped who I am. That's why I met Paul Heaton. Um, who ended up in the house Martins with? So we, yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was a, a, a very dull commuter, suburban commuter. But out of that comes the need, the the necessity to for teenagers to have a good time because you know everything's so boring. You've got to make your own fun. Yeah. So that must have kind of really helped. And we did. We yeah. We we uh, me and Paul used to busk. We had a band, not not like a busking duo. We had actually had a band with a drum kit, and we used to busk. We used to do um, parties. We used to go to the local beauty spot, park the cars in in a circle with the lights, and play and play an impromptu gig if there was nothing on. Yeah, you, you kind of had to make your own entertainment, which spurred us on. Um, but also, at the same time, that I mean, that's how I ended up in the house finds because I, I figured, even though by then I I was into dance music or as we called it in those days black music um i was into funk and soul and 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 uh, but white people didn't make me that kind of music in those days um and so i felt it, it was my destiny to be you know to play white suburban indie pop and that's how i ended up in the house minds so let's talk about the specifics of the house minds now um was there like a guy who didn't show up for a gig or something like that was it- it's something along those lines yeah i i had known paul from when we grew up in surrey and we'd been in a band called the stomping pom frogs which was basically basically a 
kind of House Martin's prototype. But then when I came down here to go to college, the drummer went to London, Paul got really despondent and moved up to Hull. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we kept in touch and I, I played on, on the, the early House Martin's demo. I played bass on that early House Martin's demos. But then he got a bass player, but then he fell out with his bass player uh, on the eve of their first sort of proper tour. And at that point, I'd just finished my degree down here. And, and he just said, would you just fill in and, and, and do this tour for us? And I, I knew half the songs because they were songs that we used to play before then. So I just walked in and, uh, and just at that point, we got a record contract and I just kind of fell on my feet. But yeah, it was, it was me sort of rejoining, uh, rejoining a, a band that me and Paul had sort of been planning before. Okay, and uh, am I right in thinking that your first gig uh, in the band was at um, Goldsmiths College? It was at Goldsmiths College in Newcross. And that's interesting, because there was somebody who was DJing there that night, warming up for the House Martins, actually. Are, are you aware who that was? No. Me. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. What a pathetic night that was, because that night... Yeah. I turned up expecting to watch the band... And when I got, and I was on the guest list, and when I got there, there's this message saying, as soon as he turns up, send him straight to the dressing room. And they said, right, Ted's out of the band, can, can you play tonight? And I was like, well, I know that one, that one, and that one. Stan said, well, I'll teach you. They, these three are quite easy. And you may have noticed I didn't play the first half of the set. I, I didn't notice that, actually. Yeah, I didn't play the first half of the set because I didn't know the songs. And then we, the second half of the set, I did. So, so they played without a bass player, and then I joined. But I literally joined. And that was... I also met my first wife that night. Really? What a weird... And it all happened in New Cross, where my family came from. Just down the road from where yeah. I first saw my uncle playing Loose in the Sky with Diamonds. Amazing, yeah. yeah. I was, I was DJing, I was at college there in, uh, at Goldsmiths, and yeah, there's like a rotor of DJs amongst the students, and uh, no, it was great. So I was like DJing uh, before and, and after you. It was, well, a small cool. word, and it's uh, so right, a good thing that I ended up marrying my wife, not you. <laughs> <laughs> can... Things could have, my life could have been very, very different. Very different indeed. So uh, I guess we should soundtrack this uh, potential beautiful moment with a house martin's track trailblazers norman kirk what a good place to be don't believe Okay, so House Martins is is taking off now, and I, I guess this gives you your your, your first taste of yeah. top of the pops and and all that kind of stuff. Amazing, just living the dream, really. Uh, again, it's difficult to explain to this generation what top of the pops means if you've grown up watching Top of the Pops and that was the weekly update of what was going on in the world of pop it was the only thing there was no pop videos you know and so to have grown up watching it the first time to actually be on it and thinking that's it we've arrived the studio is a little smaller than it looks on the telly but apart from that this is you know this is the big moment and this is how you know and Paul McCartney was I remember chatting to Paul McCartney and I was standing there watching Depeche Mode whilst chatting to Paul McCartney thinking this is it we've arrived and I remember you know me and Paul and, and, and Stan and Hugh 
hug, just hugging each other, going, "We've done it." You know, there were certain benchmarks. There was doing a doing a John Peel session is a benchmark. Yeah. Being on top of the pops, being on the jukebox in the in the Queen Vic and EastEnders. There, there's all these little th- things, benchmarks of, yeah. of of of. Now I've made it. You know, now I can actually say I've made it. And all these things was. I'd been dreaming of since I was eight, so you can imagine just how excited I was at that point and how chuffed and fulfilled. And it didn't matter to me that I wasn't 100% behind the music we were playing. And, and it was very, very much Paul and Stan's band, mm. and, and, and I was just playing the songs they wrote. Luckily, Paul was a fantastic songwriter, so they were great songs. But musically, it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but in terms of my dream, my Donny Osmond dream, I was living it. So, okay, so how did things start to morph then uh, more into you as an artist, producer, DJ in the electronic world? Well, what, what happened was, as I said, pre, pre, previous to that, the music I liked was called black music. It was soul and funk. And then latterly, kind of the early hip-hop. And it was made by black people. And, and if white people tried to make it, you know, level forty-two and simply red and people that tried, but you kind of had to put on a fake American accent or play the bass with your thumb, you know. And it it just didn't sit well with me. But what happened was, while I was in the House Martins, they invented the drum machine and the sampler. Now this opened up the world of groove, mu- groove-based music to white kids, and um, that again was another eureka moment in my in my sort of evolution. Another, um, and using the money that, that, that I was getting from the house martins, I was buying drum machines and samplers and a little port, port, port studio. And also, when we were recording, I was the only one who was bothering to watch what the producer and the engineer were doing. The rest of them were out playing pool. And I was just entranced by what goes on on a mixing board. You know, what are all these buttons for? And compression, that's, that makes things sound sexier. And, you know, how does it do that? And, and that's, when I, yeah, that's when I got into production. And increasingly that was when I became more and more frustrated that, that I wasn't playing the music that I loved. You know, I was, as a DJ, I was playing it. So at this time, you were still buying records, dance music records, and still, like, consuming records, and still, you know, uh, as a DJ, still in the game. Yeah, getting DJ slots as Norman, Norman Housemeister. I used to play at the Town & Country Club on Wendy May's night. She, whenever we were in London, she'd always let me give me a slot there, and I used to play at the Hacienda. When we were recording in Manchester, I'd play at the Hacienda. So I kept that on as a hobby, and... But what happened was, was was mates of mine that I knew from that scene, like people like Coldcut and Tim Simonon with Bomb the Bass, all of a sudden they're having chart hits and they're putting records out, doing this stuff that I really love. And I'm stuck in this band who by now the dream that, you know, the honeymoon period is beginning to be over and we're now realising that we've been stuck in a smelly van driving up and down the the M6 for the last three years and we're beginning to hate each other and I was beginning to hate I was trying to move the music on to where I felt music was going i.e. dance music and there was in those days you know Morrissey was playing Hang the DJ singing Hang the DJ and there was two camps you know you were either in the indie camp or the, 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 the dance camp 
and I was kind of stuck between the two and, and, and it, was, it was sort of untenable. So that was why I left the house was because I wanted to... Now I realised that with a drum machine and a sampler, I could make records myself and make the records I really wanted to make. And also, at that point, yeah, me and Paul and Stan weren't really talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, I would just be not like that. We, you know, they were, they were roused. But, no, I mean, we weren't enjoying it in the same way that... that, that, with, that We'd, when we'd first started, it was like, can you believe this? We're living the dream. But then it's like, this isn't necessarily all fun. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, for me, I, I, I felt a little bit like a charlatan that I was a trapped playing music that I wasn't really enjoying. Mm. And, and what sort of dance and electronic records were exciting you in, in that era? Well, there's a... a uh, let me see. I mean, there was a there was a documentary about the house and I was playing Run DMC, mixing Run DMC with the Clash. Yeah, Big Audio Dynamite. I think Big Audio Dynamite. Th- I was looking, going, "There's there's a white man who I've grown up really loving and respecting, and he's he's making interesting dance music yes. using drum machines and samplers." Yeah, and I would play Big Audio Dynamite records to to, to Paul and Stan and say, "We should be doing stuff like this," and they're like, "Nah, not interested." So I think that was yeah. I think probably Mick Jones and, and BAD were they were a big pull because it's like that's the kind of band I want to be in. Trailblazers, Norman Cook. Situation So you were effectively stuck in a genre that you didn't feel like you belonged in. Not only stuck, I was, I was actually in a dangerous place. I was in danger of getting lynched um, because... Morrissey had decreed that he should hang the DJ, uh, yeah. and the the I, I, a, a record that I'd made at home just using a drum machine got re- got released and bootlegged, um, and it was a record called "The Finest Ingredients" by DJ Meg- Megamix. But somebody in Record Mirror, when they put it in the dance chart, they credited it as Norman House Martin, not DJ Megamix, mm. and. The rest of the band were like, you can't do this. And, and then people were writing to us going, what's Norman doing making dance records? So I, literally, I mean, in those days, it was a hangable offence, yeah. like, like liking black music. And so, for you know, for not, it wasn't just for my own you know, uh, sanity, it was also for my own protection <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that I, I, I sort of came clean to what my, uh, where my allegiances really were. Hang on, so rewind, because so, you've had so many names, so many monikers over the years, Norm. So your very first one was DJ Megamix. I know, I didn't make that up. The person who bootlegged it made it up. I mean, at that, that point, dance music was still a really small little, you know, uh, underground, close-knit community. The only real um, communication we had with each other was through James Hamilton's column in Record Mirror. That was the only thing, you know, there, were, there was no nothing on... It was never played on the radio... Um, it was never, 
Yeah, it's just this one one column in Record Mirror that, that kept us in touch with what was going on, and and word of mouth and and, and you know and, and just being so we were we were all very close knit. It was, it was quite a, a close knit little band. So, at what point did you? decide to extricate yourself from this scene that you didn't kind of identify with and then uh, effectively reinsert yourself into a scene that your heart was into. So what was the tune that served as your entry point into club music and that was so vibey at that time? The Well, I, I, I completely fell on my feet because I... When I left the house, Martins, I moved back down to Brighton and I sat there for about two days thinking, hmm, all right, what do you do now? You kind of, you've lived the dream, uh, it was great, but now, what, you know, can you carry on that dream? And while I was thinking about that, I got a phone call from a lovely man called Steve Wolf. Uh, and if you're listening, Wolfie, um, who um, worked for Chrysalis, who we were kind of internationally signing through, and he knew that I was into club country and DJing and everything, and he just phoned me up and he said, um, it was just after Cold Cut had done Paid in Full of Eric B and Rakeem, and he said, we've got the rights to, I know you got soul, um, do you fancy doing a same sort of remix job? And... I said, uh, or no, not, he didn't offer me the job. He said, what would you do? And I said, well, there's an acapella of it on the B-side, so you can do whatever you want with it. You can spin that over anything. And he said, like what? I said, well, hold on. I said, give, give us 24 hours. And so I got on my little TIAC four-track port studio, and I looped up uh, the Jacksons, I Want You Back, and a drum beat, and they put a few little drops in it. And I sent it to him and said, that's what you could do. And he went, brilliant, will you do it for us? And I went, uh, <laughs> never done it before. But he, so he put me in the studio with um, Danny D, yeah. dancing Danny D, who at that point was probably like the biggest dance producer in England. Mm. Now a very successful artist manager, I should point out. Danny really took me under his wing. He was, he was kind of my mentor and we did about four or five remixes together. My first four or five um, uh, production dance productions and he taught me about i kind of knew my way roughly around the studio but he taught me about how to produce dance music and he liked my ideas and about he had the expertise and 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 for so for a while yeah we were called double trouble steve wolf and danny d basically encouraged me to become a, a remixer and then that my record company said, how come you're just doing... Why don't you, why don't you make records for us? <laughs> actually make your own records. And, and that, that was how uh, Beats International came about. Trailblazers, Norman Cook. Jam nitty gritty, you're listening to the boy from the big bad city. This is Jam Hot. This is Jam Hot. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals. Trailblazers. So, uh, tell us how Beats International um, came together, if you would. Um, it was just. 
uh, I was I was still signed to Go Discs in my contract from the House Martins. And when they heard, when my remixes were getting in the top ten, they were like, "How can you make You know, you're under contract to us, but you're making hits for other people. Um, why do you do, you know, solo stuff?" And I said, "Because I'm still white. <laughs> I'm still white." So I started experimenting. And but one thing I said was. They can't come out on, on, on Go Discs because, as a DJ, you've labels or everything, you know. And you don't. If I got said something on Go Discs, I wouldn't. Play, I wouldn't even listen to it, you know. So we invented Go Beat yep. as as, our, as a dance label. So yeah. And the first track that came out. And the first the first track was actually called "Blame It on the Baseline," which was credited as Norman Cook featuring Wildski. And then the second one was um, "Won't Talk About It," which is Norman Cook featuring Lester. And, and it was all a bit of a mouthful, so Beats International became the moniker for yeah. Norman Cook featuring, uh, which is what it was. It was it was me and, and my mates, and, and it was a bit like Soul to Soul. I would DJ, and some of my mates would just get up and rap. I think, you know, it was sort of Soul to Soul and, and Massive Attack, and, uh, kind of, we were the, the southern version of that. And um, yeah, we would have singers who would come on and sing, and rappers. We had a graffiti artist called Rec One who would paint the backdrop during the show. Uh, and and out of that, some of the some some of the better ideas made it onto vinyl. Um, the, the obviously the most the most uh, the biggest of which being W to me. Uh, can I tell you how I first heard that record? Um, do you uh, remember an act called Boys Wonder? Kind of, yes, I do, yeah. Kind of, um, you know, cool, but never really broke through massively. So anyway, I was DJing, supporting these guys at the Borderline in London, and a girl was in the crowd, and she came up to me after I'd finished my DJ set. We got chatting, and she said, oh, I'm a vocalist, actually. And uh, she said, I've, I've made a record recently. I said, oh, that's interesting. She goes, oh, do you want to hear it? And so I handed me a pair of, um, of Walkman Headphones, and I think I know who this girl is. I think you do, yeah, Lindy Layton, uh, of course. Um, yes, yeah, I just remember she was mates. With, she was mates with um, Boys Wonder. Oh, was she? Yeah. Ah, well, th- that would explain why she was there then. So yeah, I heard it and I thought, yeah, this is good. Right. Well, the first, the first the, my my story about W to me was going to see Big Audio Dynamite, and the i the B side of won't talk about it was just a throwaway loop of the baseline of Guns of Brixton and it was called Invasion of the Estate Agents but basically well, I used to use two copies of that in the in the show and people would rap over it and sing it and Lindy used to sing Just Be Good to Me over it and so but at that point it was just, it was just an instrumental B-side but I went to see Big Audio Dynamite and they came on to it so I knew Mick had heard of it and approved of it and so we yeah so we then released it as an A side with Lindy singing on it. I kind of figured the fact that Mick Jones had come on as <laughs> his intro track that he didn't have any issues with me sampling it. But Tim Simonon, uh, Paul Simonon rather, um, it was one of the one of the few Clash songs that he wrote. And when he got to number one, he did have a few issues. I got a phone call and yeah, I mean, and it, uh, which was horrible because the Clash have always been my ultimate heroes. And for your first com- proper conversation with them <laughs> to be, where's my money, motherfucker? <laughs> and I, I said. Uh, you know, you, you were there at that. I saw you there at that big audio done at BAD concert, and and Mick came on to it, 
And he went, yeah, we knew about it. He said, but you're number one in the charts now. You're making some money and you've got to share it out. And I was like, of course. And, but through that, I ended up knowing them. We came, once we'd resolved the issue, the issue, we became friends. And uh, What a funny way to uh, first <laughs> encounter your heroes, huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's very grounding. So were you the first artist ever on Go Beat then? Yes. I'd, and Gobi was was my suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, my, well, I insisted. I said, if you want me to release your records, it's got to be. There's got to be a different label identity and a different logo and a different. And they had to have the word go in it. So I just said go beat. Yeah, perfect. So there's another little dotted line to Nick, your best mate, uh, a DJ Andy Smith of, of Portishead, uh, who was also on Gobi. Yeah, in and around Ferdy and Portishead and. And all that. Yeah. And, well, it was, it was kind of, yeah, Ferdy signing Portishead and, and Gabrielle that got me dropped from my own record label. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, 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 they were having a lot more hits than I was by that point. <laughs> they were the priority hacks. <laughs> cool. So what comes next after the, uh, the Beats International era? Beats International success, uh, I... Oh. My, my first wife leaves me. I get a bit depressed. Uh, not sure. If, well, that's one of the troughs. Um, we haven't had a hit. We've been dropped. Uh, and then I discover ecstasy and, and, and form freak power. In, I mean, that's, that's kind of, in a nutshell, that's pretty much what happened, yeah. So, yes, I, I, I yeah, discovered the freakier side of, 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 of music rather than just sort of straight up. Uh, and that begat Freak Power, actually, and actually, uh, and Pizza Man and Mighty Dubcats all at the same time. I was very, I, I suddenly became very prolific, very animated and very prolific, and had lots of strange ideas. Yeah, and of course, now we come to an incredibly interesting time personally because I'd, all, I'd come up through punk and post-punk and new romantic and dance music at this point was something that happened to other people <laughs> <laughs> but um, at this time things started getting really interesting and I was really drawn to well actually you talked about your clickers I was one of your clicks another soul and you know you, it was you and what was happening on Wall of Sound and of course uh, Goldie and Liam Howlett these were my inspirations these were the my entry points into dance music not w- what was happening in house in Chicago or techno in Detroit it was this much more hybrid thing that was happening and and in student land things were getting really interesting because people were like dancing to records that were made uh, by white people using uh, black music from you know historically from quite a long time ago but it was it was still a bastardization of black music in the same way that the the, the the beatles and the rolling stones listened to the blues and soul music and, and sold it back to america america going this this invasion of british beat music it's like yeah. and they're going it's actually american music but you it was made by black people so you didn't like it yeah. and and we kind of Clean, you know, sanitized it a bit, and and, and um, yeah, sold it back to you. And, and that's the same thing that's always happened. I mean, house music was always black, gay, uh, American music, but the Americans never really liked it until the prodigy sold it back to them. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and I think again, coming back to my the longevity of my career, I think it's the fact that what I do is. I try and make it accessible. Uh, 
that's that's one of the reasons why I've always got away with it because I try and I try and make it inclusive. It's 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 not like I, I make purest techno tracks or you know the most minimal thing ever. You know, it's like I'm trying to break the rules, but I don't want to alienate you. I want to have a catchy hook in there that will draw you in. But, and while I'm doing that, I'm sort of gradually subverting what, you can, what I can do with the drum beat. <laughs> you know? mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, actually, because, yeah, I now realise that you've, that you've done lots of cool music that is inclusive rather than cool music that, of the nature that lots of other people do that is exclusive. Yeah, yeah. Making it inclusive is... is, is well, it, it, it increases your sales, and 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 also, it, yeah. I mean, you see in those days, you would see people, literally, who are at the bar, going, "What is it? What is what, what's going on in here?" And and, and then actually going, "Actually, yeah, this is this is all right." Yeah, by the end of the night, they're like, "Yeah," and so it, it was. Um, it, I was on a quite an evangelical mm. kind of uh, thing of. of, of you know, dance music isn't just a load of soul boys or or, or b boys. You know, it, it it can be for everyone. And that was around, then the Manchester thing happened, and and there was a because until then, you know, there was no cross pollination between indie music. And, exactly. And Never the twain shall meet. You are either a raver or a rocker. Yeah, yeah. And that's what made it really interesting for me because these two hitherto disparate groups suddenly started being inspired together and hanging out together and functioning socially together and it, it was an incredibly fun place to be you know the, the the purism had sort of gone out of it and people were being attracted not by the sort of pureness but just by the good times i'm just i'm just going to show you this won't work very well on camera but i'm just going to show you what this i wrote this down this is what someone described me of as Ah, the shepherd of moments. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's what your role in the music business is. Oh, I love that. That's absolutely brilliant. Perfect. Never more out. And so at this time, were you running a club night? Was Big Beat uh, Boutique up and up and running at, the, uh, at this point? Or Yeah, but we, um, basically when I, st- when I started making Fat Boy Slim records that sort of eclipsed Freak Power and Mighty Dub Cats and Peace Man and, but more importantly it was it was all being done on a record label run by mates of mine that, who lived down the road and it was all, all the records were recorded in Brighton made in Brighton and it was a, you know and, it, and that was our, our real purple period and um we were so we started making Fat Boy Slim records, and then Lindy, Lindy, weirdly enough, who I hadn't spoken to for a few years, she phoned me up and said, "You know that kind of music that you like, which is kind of like sped up trip hop, sort of sped up hip hop, but with some kind of or slowed down acid house and that that kind of break beaty, poppy bit of Beatles, you know." Uh, he said, "There's this club called the Heavenly Social, which I think you should go to." And so she dragged me up to the Heavenly Social and I bumped into the Chemical Brothers and John Carter and Richie Fearless and all that lot. And it, we, we, were, we were just like... And they were like, you're Fat Boy Slim? And I'm like, and you're the Chemical Brothers? And we, we became instantly... I found this new gang. Uh, again, you know, quite a close-knit 
gang because we were we were the you know we, we were the minority, and so we stuck together. And, and we were, but then we started all with this being on the same bills, and to save having to drive up to London every weekend to go to the social and the big Kahuna Burger and the, the nights that we're doing and that, we wanted one in. We were, we were going to call it Social on Sea mm. at first, but we decided to call it the Big Beat Boutique. And yeah, that was like our clubhouse. That was it was it was Damien and me from Skimp with the residents, um, and it was where we, tr- we could try out new ideas, where we could ju- have absolute stupid fun, break every single rule, musically, culturally, and legally. Yeah. Uh, we got away with murder, um, but it was a great. It was, and it, but it was a real sort of breeding ground of, of just how far we could push things, and we found out it was quite a, quite a long way. And yeah, that and that became and 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 that also begat the term big beat music because uh, at that point no one it was it was this music that, that, that I used to have com- conversations with Tom and Ed and they they did an album called um, Brit Hop and Tripno Brit yeah. Hop and Amel House Am- Amel House Brit oh Amel House yeah Trip, Tripno was another thing yeah, yeah, it was called yeah. uh, Techno versus Trip Hop and no one no one could quite coin the phrase no. uh, and if you think if you think that, that, that house music was named after the Warehouse Club in Chicago Garage music was named after the Paradise Garage having the the, 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 the genre of music named after your club that, that felt good that's yeah. when we felt you know we really are you know so who came up with with the name uh, Big Beat uh, Boutique then? I came up with a Big Beat bit and Gareth came up with the Boutique. I just had... Uh, uh, if you go to my studio, there's a, thing, there's, a, there's a tune called The Big Beat. There's a break called The Big Beat by Billy Squire. I got the Big yeah, Beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought... I thought a Big Beat summed up... That was, that was the only underlying uh, constant in, in what we were doing because we were playing, like I said, speeded up. Uh, um, chip hot records, yeah. slowing down acid house records. We were playing, dropping Beatles records in the middle of it. Uh, anything went as long as it had a big beat. That's right. I remember. I remember at the time, Pete. I was at Radio One at the time, and Pete Tong used to describe it as breeze block beats. Breeze block beats, yeah. <laughs> and of course, that led on to Marianne Hobbs's show, the Breeze Block, and it was such a great time to be alive and to be clubbing. And and of course, you were at the crest of a wave. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, I mean, there was there, we, and moments. I mean, we the the original Big Beat Boutique was uh, a really small venue right by the pier. It was called the Concord Concord One. Uh, it's now demolished, sadly. But it well, we used to, we used to sit in the bar the the other side of the car park in the Royal Albion Hotel. We used to sit there having a pre pre match drink, and when the queue came round the corner. We knew it was time to go in, and every every week the queue just got bigger and bigger and bigger and stuff. We, we knew we were on something, and then people started coming down from London, and 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 we felt like it was our cavern club. You know, it was our, our little dingy cellar that we couldn't squeeze all the people in, and and we reached. Yeah, we kind of felt like we were the centre of some kind of universe. And were you making records specifically with the, the, the club night in mind? Yeah. Thinking, I've got to play this. Yeah, yeah, it was actually more the other way round. It was more after doing the boutique on the Friday. We would park, carry on, we'd go back to my house, uh, carry on most of Saturday and the Saturday night. By Sunday, I kind of wasn't, I couldn't really drive or operate heavy machinery. <laughs> But I had all these ideas floating around in my head. 
And so that was that would be when I would, while I could still remember them, sort of putting the ideas. And it would be kind of a, a potpourri of, of, of all the different things I'd heard over the weekend. It's like, what happens if we put them all together on one record? Um, so it was more a reaction to the previous weekend rather than I need to write something for next weekend. And in those days, you couldn't just do a track and try it out because you had to make an acetate of it and these things took time and, you know, it wasn't as instant as that. Um, The world... I mean, the other day someone said to me, how different would your career have been had you had a, a laptop that could sample anything put anything in tune and time with everything and you could play it that night at the club how different would your career have been i'm like i have no idea it might not have worked at all it might have been stratospheric uh but there were there were constraints there were constraints and there was time constraints and this the whole big beat movement evolved over a couple of years and then because the thing is when it exploded when it really did explode and when the idea of of it was to break all musical rules and but still get in the charts but then all the records started sounding the same and they weren't getting and because of that they weren't getting in the charts and that's when big beat you know it had it it flourished and died very very quickly once it went mainstream and i think given the internet that that process could have been two months <laughs> we we got a good four years out of it because things happen slower so right now we just have to do a quick doff of the cap to midfield general aka damien harris yes uh, who is the boss of skin records of course and who came up with your name i was pizza man signed to his to loaded yeah. which is their house label and he said will you invent another moniker to make records for my offshoot yeah and at that point, I was, I was like, look, I'm already the Mighty Dovecats pizza man and I'm in freak power signed to Ireland. The last thing I needed was, an, was, a, was another alter ego, but Damien's like, oh, come on, you know you, you know, you you know, you want to. So, yeah, I mean, that was all his idea, the, the, having the club. He, he, he started the club with Gareth. Um, so, yeah, no, like you said, big props to the Midfield General. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting at this time that culturally for me and for you and for anyone that was involved in the scene at that time, that what was happening with you guys was as important culturally as Primal Scream or the Stone Roses or in in uniting dance and rock, because we talked before about never the twain shall meet and you're either a a rocker or a raver, but now suddenly there was a grey area. We were winning hearts and minds. You were winning hearts and minds and it it, it, it was culturally so important because fusing two such huge parts of youth culture on a dance floor in an atmosphere of uh, should we say intox- intoxicants and there's a massive amount of dopamine flying through everybody's bloodstream and that is um, really prof- profound in, on a cultural level and we were but also we were we were getting dance music on the radio which had never happened you know outside Pete Tong's show we were getting played on daytime radio we were we were being allowed on main stages at festivals Whereas before you, before you would never have a DJ. 
you know, or, or a dance act on, on a main stage. And again, you know, demonstrating how culturally significant this this point was. You know, you were on you, Fat Boy Slim, a dance act was on the cover of the NME. Your big beat cassette tape, I remember, was affixed to the cover of the New Musical Express, the Indie Bible. I mean, though, again, I do have to say big props to Prodigy. They were the first dance band to sell albums because another thing that didn't happen in those days was dance music sold 12-inch singles. Never sold albums. Uh, and the Prodigy changed that and then the Chems took that on then I took that on. And, and, and it, yeah, it was, you know, it, like I said, it's been an incredibly exciting time to be in doing dance music. It's like every week it's like... Who would have thought? Who would have thought we could do this? Who would have thought we could do that? Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I also consider myself very, very lucky to have been right in the thick of it when uh, all that, that stuff was happening. It's fantastic. But let's talk more now about you actually making Fatboy Slim records. I'm interested to know what you have in mind or had in mind when you were making those records, whether it was how can I make a record to go on Radio 1 or just how can I make a record for the dance floor? Both. You were actually thinking... Uh, how can I yeah. make records that that work in 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 both countries? Yeah, I think with the, I think with the first album, with Better Living Through Chemistry, it was aimed at the dance floor. But there was a few tunes that, that crossed over, um, and got played on the radio. And then by the time we did the second album, the blue we kind of had the blueprint. It's like we know how this works. We know. You know, we've 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 done our market research, so we have a bit of this, bit of that, and it's both. those ears of yours. Again. Yeah, and yeah, and 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 trust your ears. Don't don't try and make records that are cool just for the sake of it. Put a, a, a catchy chorus in, and then it get played on the radio. And yeah, so it was. Um, yeah, that. I mean, I I always I always said that 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 aside from genre breaking and rule breaking, Big Beat was basically. It was people of me and Tom and Ed's age who'd grown up listening to the Beatles and pop music and a bit of glam rock. Then we'd, when we were 14, we became punks. And then we, so there was punk attitude, but the, the, the pop sensibility of the pop music we'd grown up with had a bit of acid house and our first drug experiences and our love of hip-hop, white guys who love hip-hop. Put those four together, and that was but that's what Big Beat was supposed to be. And it was, and like I said, it was supposed to be breaking all the musical rules, you know, and and blending all the genres together, which you know, it, which wasn't supposed to be done. And how was it changing your life uh, at this time? Life turned into one very very big party for about the next ten years. <laughs> one very 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 big very fun party, a lot of which I can't. I can't. I, no, no, I just can't remember. <laughs> um, I got to move to living on the beach. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I met Zoe. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and we had a yeah. We spent the next ten years having a very big party, celebrating our good fortune. I have to say, speaking purely selfishly, that looking back at my whole musical life. Big beat is the genre that I miss the most, if I'm honest. When I look back on, you know, on the music that I've loved and all the different cycles that genres go through, you know, drum and bass coming in and then out and then in again or whatever, the one that has never come back, which I always thought must come back, is Big B. Yeah. One of the main reasons it hasn't happened is one of its major protagonists <laughs> really doesn't want to go back there. Um... We tried. We had one big beat boutique reunion, 
and it was just I just thought no these, it's that, that this was it's, it's sound, it sounds dated I, I just remember the I just remember the, the it's like a you know relationship where you only remember the, the bad bits near the end and the split up and and I just I, and I just remember it becoming formulaic and hearing records coming out and just and people people phoning up going have you heard that new record do you not think that sounds exactly like you and me going yeah I do and I don't like it and so yeah I I um, Big Beat left a nasty taste in my mouth musically and very quickly our gang like me and Tom and Ed and and, and um, uh, Richie Fearless and and uh, we, uh, we were we were like let's let's jump ship before this ship goes down you know let's dis- disassociate ourselves with Big Beat um, I mean it still annoys me that my Wikipedia entry is I'm described as a Big Beat producer and DJ <laughs> but yeah no I thought I thought it, I thought it was a fantastic moment in time and it was a fantastic way of breaking those boundaries and bringing different tribes together and turning people onto dance music who didn't like it before and it served its purpose and it was great but it was it, it, it was not tenable on a long term on a long term thing and and like rock and roll you know you can revive it but it, it sounds, still sounds exactly the same and it'll revive and then go again so tell us about the uh, the, the, the beach party then You're which one <laughs> okay so we we are sort of following a chronological timeline now because mm. um, Big Beat had had happened and had been and died and now you were just the, one of the biggest DJs in the world well, well by then like I said Big Beat had done its job it didn't they didn't have to all sound like like you know, like the, the, the same breakbeat and the same you know they didn't have to all sound like Brimford Asher, and but the the you know once the the Pandora's box was opened, and um, in terms of well, I think yeah, I mean like you said, inviting all those new people to the party, being inclusive. We invited all these new people to party. Then we threw this party on Brighton Beach and realised how many of them there were. Okay, so let's remind ourselves. So you basically were throwing a party and you just thought a couple of thousand people were going to show up, right? And then a half a million showed up. The, the first one, the first one was sixty-five thousand. But that, considering that was a Channel Four, Channel Four had put up two screens to show the, the test match on the beach. <laughs> And as an afterthought, they, they said, oh, on the last night, we've got a sound system and a screen. Should we put a local DJ on? So that, that was the first one. And we'd already lost the, lost the ashes by day two. So no one, ever, no one went down and watched the cricket, but 65,000 people turned up to the party. The second one, word got around outside Brighton. The first one was just very, very local. It wasn't advertised, really. But word got around, and, and then so the second one, quarter of a million people, and it was like that was our, it was our Woodstock. A lot of people call it Normstock, but it was our Woodstock moment when it's like if you gather the tribes from all over the country, and it's you know literally was that, like the roads were blocked from all the way from you know down the A23, and there wasn't enough toilets, there wasn't enough alcohol. I mean, every single off-licence in Brighton sold out of alcohol, even that weird green stuff and the most expensive. <laughs> so, I mean, every, you know, and the, 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 the roads were gridlocked and everything, and it, and it was that moment when we realised just how, what we'd created. Or not, well, not what we'd created, what had grown, yeah. you know, not taking personal responsibility for, 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 for it. But, and that was the moment where it's like, if you get all these people and put them in the same place at one time, that's a 
powerful, powerful thing. And, you know, and the sun shone on us. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it, it, you know it, it was the coming together for me of everything. And to be able to do that on, on the beach, very beach where you live, to your home crowd, and... Uh, for your, my, your parents to be there. The first one, I didn't bother inviting my parents because we, we thought 2,000 people were going to turn up. Second one, I had my parents there. On the, uh, they, I, got, I hired them a suite at the Grand Hotel so they could watch and see that their wayward son, who they said, ah, oh, bloody pop music, you'll never make a career out of that. I, so I could actually show them, go, this is, you know. And that must have been a proud moment. It was a very proud moment, yeah. Very, very proud moment. And a little bit frightening. Uh, well, it was slightly scary because there was too many people and like Woodstock, where, where babies were born and people died. I mean, I was working with the police... Um, for, for weeks beforehand on, on, and, and we had all these contingency plans but only for up to like 100,000 people and by the time we realised that there was way over that it was too late to stop people arriving at one point they said you can't, you know, right we, we can't do this we're going to have to close it down and I said fine that was always the deal and then they came back five minutes later and went you know what if we do close it down. I went, you're going to have a riot on your hands? They went, yep. They said, we, we just realised we've got 150,000 drunk people who've been, been there all day drinking in the sunshine and if we don't do this, it's more dangerous than doing it. And that's the only reason we're allowed you, allowing you to do it. But going into a gig knowing that it's more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so looking back on it now with the uh, benefit of hindsight. Um, and obviously I was looking wistfully back and wishing that Big Beat would come back and it's not, and I'm not alone. You know, this is a constant, almost an almost constant Twitter joke between me and Alex Metric and people like that. But when you, Norm, look back on the whole thing, is there a one tune that um, makes your heart swell with pride when, when you look back on it all now? Well, I think... I could. I'm gonna. I'm, do, you want, do you want the honest answer or a lie? Honesty is the best policy, always. I honestly am so incredibly proud of right here, right now, and praise you because I hear them in different places. I, I, you know, I hear football teams come on. You know, Man City come on to right here, right now, and I get goosebumps. And I don't even like Man City. <laughs> um, and I play. Uh, I, I hear um, uh, uh, Praise You and the lyrics fit so many different, you know, we've come a long, long way together. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people propose to their wives. Uh, uh, I've heard, you know, we've played, we've played it when we got promoted to the premiership at the, at the uh, team party. And, you know, it's, it's just one sort of, those two tunes. But I wasn't going to tell you that because I don't want you to play over them because they've both been played to death. But I do. I'm very, very proud of them because we were, you know, we weren't. Expe- I wasn't expecting to make tunes that would still be played 20 years later and still had relevance 20 years later. I always, I always thought it was quite di- disposable. It was a, like punk rock. It, the idea was to break the rules, not to make, um, you know, uh, you know, lasting tunes. So I'm very proud of the fact that they still mean something and resonate to people, and they can still give me goosebumps which yeah. most of my music doesn't um and they sum you up so perfectly no, don't but, they? I, but, but but i don't want you to play that <laughs> so can you play demons 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 which i'm equal well, i'm equally proud of i felt it was i felt because it was at the time when big beat was going out of fashion and it should have been a bigger hit um but 
I, it was great to be able to f- be a, feel like I was a point in my life where I could just phone up Macy Gray, who at that point was like the hottest thing. In and I was like, God, she's got a great voice. And then I bumped into her at the Brits and we, and we had a little chat. And, and, and then someone said, why don't you just phone her up and say, do you want to sing on my next record? I'm like... You can't do things like that. You, get there, which I, you can. You are in. The, you are in that club now. And so I did, and we did, and and I flew over to LA and stayed in the Chateau Marmont, and we made two tunes, and one of them, and then and and not only that, but then it got covered by the four or five blind boys of Alabama, a gospel version. So it sort of come full circle of of, of Bill Withers loop with, with a kind of gospel-y piano loop and was now being covered by a gospel band um, all of them you know I was, I was covering it felt like full circle because there was me like the Beatles taking black music and doing a white version of it but working with a black artist and then a black artist then covering the white version that that gave me a tremendous, tremendous feeling of pride. pride also it's you don't get to hear it as much as you do the other two, so uh, the demons would be my choice. Trailblazers, Norman Cook. It's such a good call, uh, Norm. Like I, I love, I love, and I love the honesty because actually, um, well, I know we pray demons, but those two praise you and uh, uh, right here, right now, are the, the distillation of what you were all about and you are all about. And you know, uh, praise you—that's a Camille Yarbrough record that you would have brought as a seven-inch and absolutely loved, and that you would have DJed right back in the early in your in your very, very first ever DJ gigs. You know this. The, in, in a sense, it, and, and of course, a cappella. That's what it's all about for you. And, it, and most importantly, it started with two lines a cappella, yeah. which means I could take away, take them out of the context of the rest of the tune, and make them into another song. Yes, that was uh, that was your formula, wasn't it? Such a DJ thing to do. Yeah. Right. Um, can you pick us uh, a tune that's always been with you through this uh, incredible period of, of time? Uh, tune that's never left my side, my bag, my record bag, my virtual crate is uh, the incredible Bongo Band and Apache. Um, it's yeah, I, I, I used to start. I used to cut. I used to play my first tune in the Big Beat days. Um, it's it still gets sampled in house records. It's got the uh, it. it goes back to the early days of hip hop because it was one of the original break beats that the, the, the b-boys used to break dance to uh, but it's also a great pop hook and and it gets used in some supermarket advert at the moment you know it's, it's yeah it's for me it, it's got everything it's a really gritty mental wrong sounding record 
but that is inclusive and appeals to everybody and everybody's got their favourite bit you know it's either the big stab breakdowns or or the or the, the drum the drum yeah I mean for me it's, it's the break the break is all of it but those horns are so big and you could play it to a house crowd and they'll dance to it you can play it to b-boys and they'll love the fact that you, you you've got the original um you can play it at a wedding and people just go oh, this is a jolly old tune yeah so that that's the that's never left my side uh, emotionally or physically trailblazers norman cook Okay, Norm, uh, what are you up to? What excites you? What, what's next for you? Uh, what's next for me is I'm doing my first film soundtrack, which is probably the last thing left on my bucket list. I've, as, as I get older, my bucket list is getting frighteningly small. Um, but, yeah, I'm doing a, um, uh, a musical director and doing some of the soundtrack for a film which... I can't tell you about right now, but it's very exciting and very close to my heart. And with working with somebody who I've loved and respected for a long time. So that is kind of, yeah, that's my next project. And that's a side of my, of these musical ears that I don't use so much. Normally I'm thinking, will it make people dance? Will it, you know, you know will, it, will it turn them on like that? Yeah. Um, or you know, or would it cross over and make, or would it get played on the radio? Mm. And now I'm I'm looking for music purely to evoke a certain mood or uh, to to complement an image, yeah. which is which is a different way of using it, a different flexi different. It's a bit like when I did the did the musical with David Byrne. Mm. It was like. Um, Never done this before, but it's really interesting to flex diff- different musical muscles trying to tell a story. Because most of the dance music, the best dance music doesn't really tell a story. And it's not there, not there to change the world or, you know, start a revolution. It's just there to help you escape uh, for a couple of hours, escape into a world of dance and lose yourself and you lose your mind and lose your worries and cares. So, yeah, using get, getting into the idea of, of using music to, to evoke moods or have, have a different purpose or to tell a story is something that I haven't done so much of. And so there's a, it... it, it it's exciting and new to me and after 30 years in the business there's not a huge amount of things in the music business that are new and that excite me so we come to the last one and this the is the money shot yes exactly the money shot this is the one the last question that we asked to uh, all our trailblazers guests and it is this the aliens have landed they need to make some form of intergalactic superhighway through this solar system and they are navigating the best they are surveying and they are weighing up whether to blow us up or the moon or Mars in order to make way for this uh, incredible uh, space structure and um, so you're there and you've got the opportunity to 
stay their hand. You've got the opportunity to stop them with a tune. What is the tune that you would choose well, to I'm literally so save the world? This is one of your first shows because this is such an obvious tune. <laughs> it's almost like it was written as a time capsule, you know, for, to be put in a time capsule or sent out into the stratosphere. And I think it probably was at the time sent out on some space station or something. Um, it's got to be calling occupants of interplanetary aircraft. Mm. Um, by, um, play the Carpenters version. I've just found out, actually, that it's a cover version. The Carpenters covered it? The Carpenters covered it, yeah. Good God. Um, and it is, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's, yeah, this is how beautiful, melodic and uh, welcoming music can be. It's not necessarily, it's not a dance track, but it would, it would say, I mean, if I, if, if I send them, if I send, send the aliens, smack my bitch up, they might have a different attitude to, to us humans. But um, yeah, I think just the, 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 the sultry tone of Karen Carpenter's voice alone, let, him, let alone the, the, the sentiments of the song. Um, and it's just a really beautiful piece of music. And it's, yeah, people always, they, I always say it's my guilty pleasure. Where does it take you, though? I'm interested to know, like, where are you, are you in your mind Where, when you hear this track or when you first heard this track? Where does it take you emotionally? Um, I mean, is there an association with this? There's, I think, yeah, there's various associations. I was brought... My parents really loved the Carpenters, and I've always thought Karen Carpenter had one of the most beautiful voices. Really, uh... Yeah, I, I can't... I've, like I said, from an early age, I started thinking of music not just in terms of, of, of oh I like that tune or I don't like that tune I started thinking about you know how it, how it was put together and, and you know what, you know, first time I heard I Feel Love by Donna Summer it's like what is that what machine makes that noise that goes and yeah I remember Karen Carpenter's voice being really sweet but she did say her choice of songs sometimes was a little bit away so having to listen to her singing Please, please, Mr. Postman, and things like that. But it was her, I think it was the last ever Carpenter's record before she died. And for her to come back with this absolutely epic and beautiful song that is kind of, it's like MacArthur Park or something like that, you know, it's just, it soars and it moves you and it's got these great chord progressions and... It's all but almost breaks into easy like a Sunday morning at one point. Um, a few comedy elements that if I did an edit, I might take some of the some of the alien noises out. There's one chord change that really annoys me. Um, but yeah, no, it, but uh, in turn, but your if your setup is weird, trying to communicate with aliens and tell them we are your friends, <laughs> send you a song that says we're calling you and we are your friends, so we come in peace. It, it is very, um, it's literally reaching out. It's a very noble thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, I think, in, I think. Karen probably knew she was dying and I think she wanted to do one last thing for humanity and I think, I'm pretty sure they did have it beamed out to all the sta- space stations to yeah, so I mean in, in answer to your question, if there are alien out life forms out there, chances are the first song they put here probably will be this one, because it's the one that's been sent the furthest out. Perfect, what a lovely way to end. Norman, thank you all right. Well, thank you so much. That's all right. We saying. really appreciate the time and the and the hospitality. No worries. I wish just wish I could have given you provide you a little bit more electricity. <laughs> Trailblazers, Norman Cook. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. 
Originals. Trailblazers. Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to Norman Cook for joining us. Next time, Marianne Hobbs. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.